Hey, this is Rob Harder with Making Your World Better, a nonprofit leadership show where real stories from real people who are coming up with real solutions to solve society's biggest challenges. What does it take to be an effective nonprofit leader today? How do people fundraise in an economy that is constantly in flux? How do you relate to board members in a way that inspires them to make a difference? What are the best practices that separate effective nonprofits from others? It is my hope that through these episodes, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear real stories from real leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy this series as together we hear how they're making their world better. Nonprofit Leadership Podcast, Making Your World Better. Today's guest is Dr. Mark Laberton. He is the president of Fuller Seminary and brings to his role a deep awareness of the challenges of leadership within the nonprofit sector as a leader, an author, and a professor. Before joining Fuller's faculty in 2009, Laberton served for 16 years as the senior pastor of First Presbyterian Church of Berkeley, California. He has authored several books, including Called and The Dangerous Act of Loving Your Neighbor. He received his doctorate at Cambridge University and has been involved in the nonprofit sector for more than 30 years, speaking before a broad range of audiences, including numerous conferences and events. And in this podcast, he will talk about the trends he has seen in the nonprofit sector, specifically with the millennial generation, regarding leadership changes, expressions of faith, and their involvement or lack thereof within certain segments of the nonprofit world. Many of you listening are leaders of nonprofits, and you're wondering how best to lead your organization. I think you're going to really appreciate Dr. Laberton's perspective and the insights he brings regarding the latest trends in our culture today and how best to engage with millennials in ways that will help your organization thrive even more. Enjoy today's show. Well, Dr. Laberton, it is so good to have you on the show today. Let's just start out by telling us a little bit about yourself, what your role is now, and your journey to become the president of Fuller Seminary. Sure. Well, thanks, Rob, for having me. I'm very glad to be on the program. I was raised in Washington State, and I um, was raised really outside the life of the, of the Christian church, uh, largely. So as a result, it was a, anything but a logical thing that I would end up uh, being a Christian, let alone eventually becoming a Presbyterian pastor, which I did for many years, largely in Berkeley, California, let alone going on and being a seminary professor, <laughs> let alone becoming the president of the seminary. So I find the whole trajectory really quite a surprise. Uh, it's It was not my childhood imagination at all, and or even my adult imagination that it would really take all these directions. So I think it's been uh, a great adventure. It's been an opportunity to serve in, in a lot of very, very interesting, high-stimulus um, growth and changeable areas. So I've, I love the years that I served as a pastor, and especially to be able to do so in a weird and wonderful place like Berkeley was fantastic. Um, and then to go on to do more theological education, which I had done uh, at Cambridge and then came back and served again in Berkeley for a still longer period of time and then eventually came to Fuller Seminary on the faculty and four years ago became president. It's um, It's been a wonderful adventure and not only unexpected, but full of lots of great opportunities for service and for personal growth. And I I hope for meaningful leadership in uh, a sector that I think really, really is quite important and certainly has been very inspiring and encouraging to me to be in settings that are as challenging as the ones I've been in and as, as rich with opportunity as they are. 
Well, it is ironic how you came, like say, outside of the faith community that now you serve in. So maybe more broadly speaking, when it comes to the nonprofit sector, maybe go in a little more detail. What prompted you specifically to get involved with the nonprofit sector? And specifically, you got involved with church work. And then, of course, you moved into the seminary uh, as a professor and then later president. But what were some of those things that prompted you that that moved you in that direction? And obviously, it's been, sounds like an academic role primarily. But uh, talk about that a little bit of uh, some of the promptings in your own life when you were younger, in your 20s, et cetera? Well, I think what tends to motivate most people in nonprofit leadership is a combination of values and need. So on the values side, it was a growing conviction about what I see as the importance of uh, theological life, a spiritual life, Christian life in my case, and, and academic reflection, the importance of helping people to think meaningfully and deeply about issues of faith and its relationship and implications for the world. Those were sort of the values that that drew me into uh, becoming a pastor ultimately and then beyond that uh, becoming an academic and then becoming an academic leader. Um, I think on the on the need side, it was also the fact that in so many settings, it's, it was clear to me as a kid growing up and it was is still clear to me that often the church misses responding to needs because it doesn't have the kind of leadership that actually would step toward the culture and toward the crises and needs of the culture and world that we live in. And so it felt to me like this was an irony because understood at its core, I would think the Christian faith should motivate Christian people to not only think deeply about the world and its needs, but to engage deeply. And so to be in a, in a context first as a pastor and now as a person in theological education that tries to form future Christian leaders, both for regular Christian ministry settings, churches and nonprofits, uh, as well as people that are wanting to integrate their faith into their workplace setting, whatever that may be. That task uh, felt to me like it was an urgent one, and uh, newspapers daily seemed to at least convince me that there was a need for better leadership and, and better formation. And that's what I've tried to do actually in both roles, both as a pastor and now as a theological educator. So one of your primary jobs in your role as president is to inspire, equip, and lead a large contingent of future leaders of whom many, the majority I would guess, will go into the nonprofit sector, whether faith-based or not. So what, in your opinion, are the three key things that you hope everyone who leaves Fuller integrates into their work, their life, their nonprofit service after graduation? Well, I think maybe for your listeners, it's worth noting that that Fuller Seminary is a, an unusually large seminary as seminaries go. Most seminaries in America are around 160 students, and Fuller is in the many thousands. So it's a different scale. It has 120 denominations and 70 countries represented in the student body. So I say all that just to say when you think of trying to address the question that you've just raised, I have to think of that in relationship to First of all, the major diversity of people that are here, the variety of places that they're coming from and to which they will eventually go. So there's lots of qualities that I hope are important, but I'll just name a few that I think are particularly important right now. I think one that comes immediately to my mind is courageous. Um, I do think that we're in a time when the world is in almost, it seems, unprecedented seasons of change and turbulence of uncertainty, fearfulness, anxiety, uh, urgency, and where institutions that have been in place for the last several decades are undergoing huge revision um, economically in terms of values and perspective, cultural location, uh, so many different things are all moving. So 
the thought of trying to form someone as a, as a nonprofit leader who is courageous feels to me to be an essential quality. By that, I'm really meaning somebody who really does understand the significance of of stepping toward the crisis with a capacity, a commitment, a readiness to engage and to to work with others in that process. So I would say courage is, is an essential quality. I'm not sure that we would traditionally have said that about a lot of nonprofit leadership. Often it's been more auxiliary rather than actually primary. And I would say now nonprofit leadership is um, uh, at least holds the potential of primary leadership in addressing places of, of and needs of great urgency and, and challenge. Uh, I think another one that is of extremely important quality that's related to that is collaboration. And here I'm thinking especially of the fact that nobody thinks these days that the world is changed by heroes alone. It's always people in community. And the things that really change society are places where groups of people are motivated and enabled to work well together and to be able to achieve the kind of uh, goals and objectives that they're seeking out of their values and their commitment to respond to whatever set of needs may be particularly on their mind and heart. So I think collaboration is the is a second key. So courage and collaboration. And I think probably the most overused word of the day, but I think is an important word, is the word innovation, which would be another quality and capacity to be able to think as expansively as possible, but also as deeply as possible in trying to reconceive the task that is at hand, whatever the nonprofit's work may be. So I think it's not a day of believing that we just more or less replay elements and patterns and practices of the past. I think we learn from history deeply and we reflect significantly, but then we also need to innovate. And by that, I mean we don't abandon the past, but we do build off of the past into a new era, which is clearly the era that we're in. We're so much is changing and where the trajectory of so many of the enterprises that we might be engaged in are undergoing fundamental redefinition. So I think at least those would be three important qualities to me. No, very helpful. No, thanks for that. And and I think about you and, and most people I'd say outside of Fuller look to you as both a speaker and a leader. And so to kind of zero in on the leadership trait uh, focus, what are the most important leadership traits nonprofit leaders need to cultivate in order to lead in today's nonprofit organizations? You mentioned things are changing, the world's changing, and, and so a related question to that would be, have you seen any major changes in these key leadership traits in, say, the last 20 years, or have they remained static in terms of the actual traits people need? Are they pretty consistent, or do you feel like there's a new type of leader that people need to become or cultivate within their own leadership style in order to successfully lead today's nonprofit organizations? Yeah, the interesting thing is that I, I think there is a continuity, but I, I do think that there's, there's a lot of change that's occurred. So um, I would say any good leader probably over time has been a person that needs to demonstrate a capacity to listen. This is, I would say, the first and foremost quality of any nonprofit leader. If If we're not actually listening well, then our ability to lead is not only going to be seriously hampered, it's going to be distorted by our misinformation and our misperception. We think we understand and know something that we may not, and we think we understand and know what we should do about it, which we may not. And if we're going to be effective leaders, I think listening has got to be one of the primary qualities. So it is true, I think, that that I am probably known as a person for 
both speaking and leading. But I hope that in both contexts, I don't do either thing without listening first, because if I don't do that, then I'm not really hearing what's going on. And for me as a Christian, that involves what I think of as an act or series of acts that involve listening for God's voice in the midst of whatever it is that's going on. But beyond that, I also want to say, yes, but I also want to listen very carefully as well to the the people that I'm working with, the people that we're trying to serve or engage with the realities of circumstances that are around in the culture, world, religious debates, or uh, philosophical, social, economic realities, which I want to take with the greatest seriousness so that I come to what I'm doing, having listened and continuing to listen. I want to speak and lead as a listener, not as a certainly not as a dictator, not as a person who just makes declarative statements, but as somebody who's really trying to understand and engage in order to truly serve and respond to whatever it is that may be going on. So I I think probably historically that's always been important. But when some roles have been traditionally thought of as roles that are simply taken by people who are presumed to already know all the things that need to be done, they just come in and execute them, that's a form of leadership that I would think on the whole today really doesn't work. And there would be many, many examples of that across our nation, both in the political sphere and in the nonprofit and economic and business sphere, where the failure to listen, I think, is showing up in a as a crisis. And, and I think often the church has not been good at listening. So in my own sector, I'm very concerned about how do we form leaders who are good listeners that actually truly try to understand what's happening around us. So I think that's a, a very important quality. That's interesting. I'll pause just real quick. I, that's fascinating to me that you start with listening, and I would agree with you. But it's I, I you know, as you look at the leadership books that are out there, uh, the, the top leadership experts, I've not heard that listed as one of the top ones. And I and I'm really intrigued that you start there, because I know I see that in my own life, and I see it with the leaders I really look up to and respect. You being one of them, I think listening is a skill that's very underrated, and really, particularly in today's world, I think is even more needed. So I, I think it's fascinating you start with that. Yeah, well, I I do think it's often overlooked. Um, It's ironic, of course, because to overlook it really presumes so much. Literally, it is an act of presumption. I was taught as as a child to enter a room listening, not speaking. And I think as a leader, I always try to remember that. I enter a room, a situation, a context, assuming that the first act is listening, not speaking. And there are moments where speaking may be the need to be the emergency response. But in most cases, uh, 99% of the cases, I would argue, it's it's almost always better to start by listening, not speaking. So I think that's, that's absolutely critical. Um, I think something that's related to that, actually, as a, that is part of the act of listening, is humility. Um, I, I emphasize that because, again, I think in a culture that's competitive, aggressive, assertive, all of which are are potentially really quite good words. Um, it can also be the case that a failure to have and exercise humility means that we may listen, but we don't actually hear. So one of the issues in leadership I think that's critical is not just that I hear what's being said, but that in some deeper sense I internalize what I've heard. And to do that requires humility in the sense that I need to lay down my own presuppositions. I need to lay down my own uh, potential arrogance in believing that I already know, already see, already understand 
when in fact that may not be the case. And I think of here of how many times nonprofit enterprises fail to actually land on target. They they see a great need, they feel the urgency of its response, they don't really unpack all the issues, and then they create responses that don't land on target. They don't actually end up producing the outcome or making the difference that we would all really wish that they would make. And here again, I think in the sector that I'm in, in theological education, seminaries have sometimes within the life of the church been uh, thought of as, a, as an institution that does whatever it does, but it's not really listening carefully to the church. And I think that's often been a, a very fair critique. So the question is, how do we listen, and then how do we have humility to learn in the process both what we're doing right, but also what we're doing wrong, and how we could do a much better job of it. So I think that's a, a second quality. Um, I think another quality is a willingness to actually um, think outside the box. So often, I think we we function out of a set of presuppositions, a paradigm. When Thomas Kuhn, a number of years ago, wrote his um, really hallmark book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, and he was talking about paradigms, he, he talked about these ways of perceiving, which often, to dislodge, require almost like an explosive uh, event of some kind, which finally dislocates us enough that we could actually consider a radically different paradigm. In most of the cases where nonprofits are trying to make significant difference, I think it's it, it's worth acknowledging that there needs to be something perhaps explosive, that reorders our perceptions and our thinking about what it is that we're doing. If we're simply trying to extend the paradigms and the assumptions that have been used in the past, then it, it may well be that it's a useful service, but it may not actually be the game-changing service that we would like to think that we're, in, that we're trying to provide, because we're carrying into it so many assumptions about how we think, think things should really just basically be done. And I think we then end up sometimes unwittingly or unintentionally at least, replaying the past in ways that we that we don't really actually see clearly. So I think part of what we need to do is really be willing to think in new terms. And to do that really requires imagination. And I think maybe that's the final word I would, I would just mention, that to think outside the box and act outside the box requires a form of leadership that engages the imagination, not just organizational ability or problem solving, but really imagination. How do we reconceive, reperceive, reengage with new angles of of thought that could actually disrupt, constructively disrupt whatever it is that we see as the need and concern that's driving our, our enterprise. I really like that. And again, I like your perspective, uh, some unique ways of looking at leadership. And as I think about the millennial generation, this upcoming generation, which I know Fuller has a lot of, um, let's shift there a little bit and talk about some shifting um, trends, if you will, with this next generation. There was a study recently done by LinkedIn pointing out that for millennials, most of them will have four separate jobs within the first 10 years out of college. Most average four different jobs before age of 32. Are you seeing these same trends within leaders of faith communities and nonprofits from where you're sitting there as president? Yes, I am seeing that same thing. I think I, I think it's probably been quietly true for longer than just the millennial generation, I want to say. But I do think, yes, there's a great deal of shifting going on. And, and I think with that, there's both pluses and minuses. I think the pluses are that it really is suggesting that we're in a time where there's a shakedown going on of many standardized ways of doing and thinking and being and 
and everybody is kind of trying to chase and figure out what is the right and best, most meaningful or significant way of engaging in whatever kind of concern we might be giving ourselves to. But I think the other side of it is negatively is that um, often there's an, a fearfulness that is like chasing the wind that is different than imagination and innovation. I think imagination and innovation can be driven by fear. Um, but I think what I'm getting at is I think there's a feeling that uh, that often we're chasing the wind when we make so many changes that it's as though we think we're trying to find the perfect fit, the perfect job, the perfect convergence of the universe that's going to cause us to believe that where we are, who we are, who we're with, what we're doing, how we're doing it, uh, is the perfect combination. And I think there is a kind of illusory quality to some of the changeability that's going on. On the other hand, there needs to be uh, fast-acting and innovative and creative engagement that, that doesn't get stuck and that I think people are right to try to be as nimble as they can. Nimbleness, I would say, or agility is is one of the most important qualities, I think, whether you stay inside an organization or whether you change organizations and contexts of service. And I think the changeability you're describing happens in both ways. Sometimes people just change within an industry, for example, to different roles or different enterprises. But sometimes people move across enterprises partly because they're motivated to try to figure out, but where in this broad spectrum could they make the greatest difference? So the changeability in the way you're describing it is an assumption. And I think what I'm trying to suggest is just that we need to think about what it is that's driving that changeability. And some of it, I think, is really quite constructive and helpful. And some of it, I think, is more a sign of cultural uh, neurosis and anxiety and fear than it is about um, innovation and imagination. Again, very interesting take on that, and I, I do see those trends uh, within my work and certainly the nonprofit sector in general. And, and as we continue to talk about the millennial generation, uh, what and you've heard these studies, you've read these studies, and probably you see it again up close and personal. Many have pointed out the fact that for many within the millennial generation, when it comes to the institutional church, um, many are leaving the institutional church and joining, supporting, and getting involved with the nonprofits that maybe don't necessarily have a faith-based orientation to their organization. So my question for you is, do you see a trend within millennials that they're, quote, replacing church involvement with nonprofit involvement? If you've seen this trend, why do you think it's happening, and how is Fuller addressing this? Yeah, um, yes, I think I do see the pattern to some degree. Um, I, I see it especially where there's a need for people to want to move from a, an affirmation of concern to tangible action, and often a, a Christian millennials' values may lead them to want to say, where can I take that faith and put it into action in a way that will make a big difference in the world? And for many millennials, that does lead them from the church into nonprofit action. I see that as being complementary rather than being an abandonment. Sometimes, of course, it is an abandonment of the church and a replacement of that by nonprofit activity. I think millennials are are deeply right in saying that action in the world is needed in order to address the crises that we're facing. And people want to do that in meaningful ways, in change-making ways, and in ways that are going to address uh, as concretely as possible the real needs that people are facing in the world. So I think that instinct about change is right. And I think the Christian faith actually contributes and motivates many to make this change. 
Um, I think sometimes it happens, however, because the church itself has failed to be a community of action and has been more community sometimes where it can be guilty too much of, of mere affirmation or confident belief or assertion of certain values, but has not been as good as it needs to be in actually moving people to concrete action in the world. So I think um, when that indictment happens, that indictment needs to be understood for what it really is trying to get at. The church then needs to think seriously about what that's revealing. But on the other side, uh, we certainly would want to be, uh, as a community, a community that believes that real action in the world can matter, and where that's life-giving and life-encouraging then and justice seeking we would want to do everything possible to to help make that really happen. So I don't see it as a as a problem per se. I do think it sometimes is a bellwether of whether the church is doing its job or not. But whether the church is or isn't doing its job, there's always going to be a need for uh important and meaningful nonprofit action. I like that perspective and and when you think about that, what are some of the emerging expressions of faith and communities of faith that perhaps are outside the so-called institutional church that in your opinion are really powerful expressions of faith being lived out in a community context? Like you said, maybe this is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh there's there's new um you know expressions of faith being um you know emerging throughout the country. What are some of those expressions of faith that you're seeing and and what are the more positive ones? Well, I think of one of our alums um uh, uh, who named Delonte Goulston. And Delonte uh, graduated a few years ago from Fuller, and he's a community activist in Los Angeles. And one of the things that he's been responsible for bringing together is something called Trust Talks. And Trust Talks are a gathering of of people in various official capacities, from civic and political roles to police roles, human health and service roles, uh, nonprofit roles in response to community needs of so many different kinds in Los Angeles, uh, and to bring people together in what he's referring to as trust talks. Now, we're just on the cusp of, of the celebration and remembrance of, of the agonies, really, of, um, of Rod the Rodney King riots and all the things that related to that. Celebration, I'm not meaning in the sense of happiness, but in an acknowledgement of the hard work that's been going on in Los Angeles to address issues of race. Those issues within the police force, the city in general, continue to be extremely problematic. And um, and what these trust talks are attempting to do is to continue to bring people together in sustained conversation around common interests and concerns, but often in places where there's deeply fractured trust. And and I, I love the, the name of this effort, and I love the fact that Delonte is one of the people in Los Angeles that's, that's helping to make these conversations happen. I think that's something which is not landing in a product. There's not around it a formal nonprofit, but it brings together civic and nonprofit energies in ways that are trying to respond to the reality of, of real need on the streets and in the lives of people in Los Angeles. I think there's a lot of initiative like that that's going on in, in various uh, contexts. I think of of another one of our students who graduated a number of years ago who serves, began and, and serves uh, in a very significant um, food project in the Midwest. Somebody who is really helping to lead in that community uh, a response to hunger in a city that is desperately poor and in neighborhoods that are underserved by all of the, the food programs.
programs that might otherwise reach the population. There's been a confusing, confusion of political and, and economic mandates in that state and city, which make the work particularly hard. And I think what they've done has, again, been an in incredible act of trying to bring people together in order to respond in, in really tangible terms. I suppose one of the more dramatic examples of what you're asking about would be, and I know that you yourself, Rob, have had contact with this organization, but the work of International Justice Mission in Washington, D.C. Okay. Um, again, we're thinking these days about the, Rw the Rwandan genocide and uh, the significance of the 800,000 lives that were lost. And Gary Haugen, who's the founder of IJM, was the head of the UN investigation into the Rwandan genocide. He was there when the body count was still going on, when they would go into churches and stadiums where these lives had been uh, so tragically and horrifically lost. And he came back from that experience not only highly motivated, but deeply inspired to ask, how can we seek justice for people who are victims of violent oppression in various parts of the world? And out of that came, came an organization now known as International Justice Mission, which responds to people who are victims of, of violent injustice. And, uh, and it's an organization now that's the largest uh, anti-human trafficking organization in the world and, and is regularly and, and cons consistently working now not only to help individuals and groups of people, families, find freedom from various forms of human trafficking, but also to change systems in the response to the various of the five nations that have the greatest concentrations of human trafficking victims, to be able to change laws and even more the enforcement of those laws in order to be able to have the kind of rule of law that can protect the most vulnerable people, which in most of these countries doesn't exist. So it's a very significant task, and it brings, again, faith and concrete action to bear in a very inspiring and, and marvelous way. That's a great example, and I am certainly a fan of International Justice Mission. And um, and I think as related to that previous question, um, when you, you do a lot of travels, you interact with a lot of different nonprofit and faith leaders throughout the country and throughout the world. Um, and perhaps IGM is a great example you could use, or maybe there's another example you want to use. But when it comes to these nonprofit organizations, whether they be faith communities or just a general nonprofit, um, what sets them apart, like specifically, like the, the infrastructure, the leadership skills, uh, maybe the mission? What, in your opinion, really sets them apart and why they're really thriving and growing and and expanding maybe versus other nonprofits that are struggling to move forward? What sets them apart? Yeah, it's a really, really important question. Uh, I do think a lot of it has to do with the way that the leader themselves is a combination, almost an iconic combination of the values and the activities of the nonprofit. So using Gary Haugen as an example, again, Gary would be an embodiment of the mission of what IGM is doing. It's committed to the, the seriousness of the task, which he holds deeply and profoundly in his own heart and mind. He gives his best skills and abilities to be able to engage that. He has the capacity to be able to bring other people into that work in a way that tries to embody in them or nurture and form in them an embodiment of the same kind of values of, of this compassionate but tangible, highly competent expert response to an unseen uh, population with acute vulnerability. That has to be sustained, and then it has to be nurtured 
in a culture creation, which is a very key part of a leader's task, a culture creation that makes sustaining such an intense mission possible. Because otherwise, you could easily just fry and burn out everyone involved because the work is so difficult and because it's so challenging. Um, it's really, really quite a remarkable thing to be able to sustain this sort of mission. This is part of why I think so many nonprofits only exist for a single generation or sometimes at most for two generations because, frankly, the creation of culture and the sustaining of of, uh, of of culture and individuals who are prepared to be able to live into the mission in that way is is a difficult thing to achieve. And and I think where it's being achieved, those are some of the factors that, that have the, per, the importance of the leader, their ability to invite others into it, and then to form a culture that it becomes itself the embodiment of the mission on a sustainable basis, which can then be carried out in whatever targeted population or set of concerns that particular enterprise is trying to address. Uh, very helpful. And and no doubt, I think the sustainability factor I've seen with IJM and they, yeah, they continue to grow uh, and they're, they're expanding their services. They're not shrinking back or, or hitting a plateau. Um, so that very, very good example. And I guess the wrap up is I know a lot of people are going to hear this podcast. are going to want to find out more about you, more about Fuller, perhaps more about some of the programs you offer. Where would you send them if they uh, want to find out more? What's the websites perhaps, or a uh, Twitter feed, perhaps where do you send them if they can find out more from about you and Fuller. Right. Well, I would be happy to be in touch with anyone who would like to know more about Fuller or more about uh, the work that I've been doing here at Fuller. Uh, the easiest way to contact me is through uh, my mailing address, email address, which is president at uh, fuller.edu. Certainly, if you uh, write to me there, I would be more than happy to respond. Um, if you go to fuller.edu, you'll find uh, plenty of information about Fuller. One aspect of Fuller that is new, and we're just, uh, in fact, on April 26th celebrating the one-year anniversary of it, is the launching of something called Fuller Studio. Fuller Studio is a digital video platform that we launched about a year ago with an interview between uh, Bono and Eugene Peterson regarding the Book of Psalms. It was a wonderful interview, and, and it, what it expressed was really a commitment to unlikely conversations. How do you bring uh, a, a new and Old Testament interpreter and translator together with uh, a rock star and uh, have a meaningful conversation about what has inspired both of their lives, which in this case was the book of Psalms. Um, we've since produced many, many other resources, and we would certainly encourage people to go to to uh, Fuller Studio uh, and find at, in Fuller Studio all kinds of resources that would both express our mission and uh, be an example of how we're trying to tell our story to a wider audience than those who happen to come to Fuller because they want courses or degrees. And then if you go to fuller.edu, you'll find a lot about various uh, degrees and programs that we have available for people that are wanting full degrees and people that are wanting uh, to be part of a, of a wider communication that we now offer that has to do with how we serve people in nonprofits and in any role of, of life or context of work or ministry. When I've seen that video with Bono and Eugene Peterson, and it's fascinating, and I'm so glad you did that, and I agree. I, I would recommend anyone who's listening, go check out that video, and it sounds like again, you have a lot of different videos now on the, the studio there. So what a great resource. Uh, thank you again for your time, uh, Mark. It's been great to hear your heart. Again, you uh, you help so many different people. You're speaking all over the world. Thanks for carving out time out of your busy schedule to be on the show, and uh, thanks again for your time, and we look forward to seeing what kind of response we get from this podcast. 
Well, Rob, thanks. And I, I do want to say quite earnestly both to you as an example of this, but also to any of the people who are listening, that, that nonprofit leadership is one of the most important ways that people can exercise their gifts and leadership. And I just want to thank people for all of the visible and invisible ways that they seek to create a common good that's going to serve people in so many different contexts of life and need. So thanks to you and thanks to everyone who's listening to this for the hard work that you're all doing. Oh, thanks for saying that. And again, you're welcome. And uh, yeah, and I, I would agree with your comments. So, uh, some of my be- best heroes are nonprofit leaders throughout this country that are doing good work, um, often underpaid, underappreciated, but doing good work and making a difference. So thanks for saying that. Absolutely. I wanted to let you know that we are on iTunes. If you are wondering how to find out where we are, check us out on iTunes by typing Nonprofit Leadership Podcast or Rob Harder, and this podcast should show up. We also encourage you, when you go on iTunes, let us know what you think. Give us a review. Give us a rating. We would love to hear what you think of this podcast, and your feedback will help us expand this podcast to get it out to as many people as we can. You can also go online to listen to this podcast, either nonprofitleadershippodcast.org or my website, robharder.com. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep making your world better.